0: You have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to the book of Exodus. Chapter 32, we'll be starting reading here in just one moment in verse 15. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Exodus chapter 32 in the beginning of that passage that we'll be reading from on page 67 of that Bible. When I first started pastoring in Tennessee, I was a bivocational pastor, and I had a job, a part-time job, working as a, as a manager and a delivery driver for Papa John's. And uh, when we were there, uh, we, I met a, a, what I would call a kid, although I wasn't too much older than him at the time. He was 18 or 19, named Dustin. And Dustin was super kind and optimistic about everything so much so that it kind of weirded everyone out he never ever got angry about anything and so managers would take advantage of this and the the jobs that they knew that they would get flack from other people for they would give to Dustin and in his sweet Tennessee accent he'd just be like okay I will go do that and he would just go do it and it didn't matter what happened it didn't matter how badly customers treated him we had this huge delivery area we were just north of Knoxville and sometimes it was uh, we had about a 15 mile area so that's like Taking an order in Bay City, driving it to Midland, delivering it, getting stiffed on the tip, and then coming back, and he would just be like, "Well, at least the drive was pretty." And uh, just just super like Joel Osteen about everything, super super energetic, and and it was almost to the point of being creepy. Like nothing ever bothered the man. He he was just unfazed by everything, and and it was just. It was like a Seinfeld kind of thing where you're waiting for the serenity now and then the insanity later to come. We didn't know if at some point in time he was going to snap and kill every single person in that building. And it was just as somebody who has in his own life fought anger, I found him to be an alien. Like I just, I don't know how people react like that to things because anger is a, a normal sort of human reaction. Getting upset and frustrated when things don't go your way or when people take advantage of you is a, is a normal thing seems like it is something that is part of being human. We might think of anger as a sin. Anger isn't a sin in any sort of straightforward way. We have seen anger in God. We have mentioned that God becomes angry with sin. We we heard about it just last week that his wrath towards the people was hot. He was angry with them and he was willing and ready to destroy them off of the face of the earth. At some level then, whether it's the Lord God in the Old Testament speaking of his wrathful anger or it's even Jesus in the New Testament, we have instances of him being angry. We have instances of him being angry by driving people out of the the courtyard in in the temple. We have anger in him when he raises Lazarus from the dead. He is angry at the death of his friend. We we have that, and in a sense, because the Lord shows anger, it legitimizes anger. But we also have a great limit to that emotion. We're right to note that it's not a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that should define us, that should characterize any sort of Christian. You shouldn't say, well, he's an angry man. If you're a Christian, it just shouldn't be part of who you are. So we have, in one sense, the fact that anger is, at times, very legitimate. And at the other sense, we have a balance that needs to be struck, that we can't be characterized by anger. And Paul seems to model this really right approach, this way of balancing these two things out. Anger finds its way on device lists, sin lists, lists that, that label quarreling and sexual immorality and jealousy and slander and gossip. He lists anger amongst those things, saying these things shouldn't be part of who you are. And yet he does say that you can be angry and not sin. In Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. How do we achieve this in our lives? Certainly, we we don't have a guide for every single situation that you're going to be in, but I think that our text today hopefully can shed light on how we manage anger in our own lives. After all, our text starts with Moses, who has been up in the cloud. Last week, we know that the Lord God was able to see down and to see the evil of the idolatrous idolatrous worship that's going on by his people, but now we have Moses coming down to confront the people. And there is one word above all others that would describe his attitude at the very beginning of this text. It is that he is livid. He is upset. What can we learn from him being hot with anger and how he handles his anger this morning? Let us go to the word of God as we begin reading in chapter 32, verse 15. There we read, Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and, burnt, and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, But not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. And when Moses saw the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his brother, of his son, and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. And behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the Tent of Meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the Tent of Meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at, the tent, at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent... The pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, And I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. This is the word of our God. Just two things to point out this morning. As we consider the anger of Moses and how he appropriates that anger for what is good and right and true. First, I would ask and think that from this text we should make logic the result of our anger. Make logic the result Of our anger. We should understand Paul's own comments on anger that we ought to make anger serve us and not have anger control us. Anger is not to be characteristic of our lives, even if it's present, but we know that self control is to be. Anger is never to get the best of us, but we are to control it, to use it for our own good, for the good of those around us. We're not to be like toddlers who hit others and find things that they can throw that are laying around them simply because they're angry, or adults who treat other people wrongly because they're angry about something else in their lives, and allow their anger to kind of spill the banks, as it were, and to go over and flood other areas of their lives. Notice precisely what Moses does when he comes down. The very first thing he does is break the tablets that are in his hands. And just to clear something up, because we haven't talked about the tablets too terribly much, even though we talked about the the 10 words that were spoken, the 10 commandments, you shouldn't think of these like Charlton Heston carrying 800-pound stones in each arm, which seems ridiculous, but nevertheless, I'm glad that they were styrofoam because they would have been incredibly heavy. Tablets were probably much smaller than that, something that any one of you could easily hold in your hand. And there were two of them. The text here says they were written on front and back because each of the ten words was written on each tablet. There were two copies of it. This was meant to signify that what God was doing with his people was like ancient treaties between nations. When nations would make these treaties, each one would get a copy of those commandments, and they would keep them before the Lord their God. Whatever God they happened to serve, they would keep it in their temple. And so what God has done is written these things down for the people because he is making a covenant with them and they will keep them together in the ark of the Lord before him forever. When Moses comes down then, he shatters them. He throws them on the ground, not in an accident, not a whoopsie. He's not being a toddler and throwing them down simply because he's angry. But he does it because he's upset. He does it to show them precisely what is going on. As he sees the people, remember Aaron has said, let's have a festival to the Lord. They are confused about worshiping idols and and how they are to worship the Lord their God. Even as Aaron has justified this as worship of the Lord, Moses comes down and shows them emphatically that what you are doing is breaking the covenant. In ways that they will perfectly and clearly understand. The moment that he shatters those, those stones on the ground, every single person who is there who sees it knows precisely what is going on. The covenant is broken. Moses would look at them and say, you have broken the covenant, therefore these stones can last no more. Moses doesn't go off half-baked. He doesn't go off in an anger fit of tantrum, but rather he is logical in his anger. Throwing that tablet down, both of those down, shows that they have broken the covenant just as those stones lie broken on the ground. Next, he does the next logical thing. And in his anger, he ruins the calf. He breaks it, he shatters it, he crushes it, grinds it down. This is not a temper tantrum, but it's the right thing to do. And frankly, something that should have been done long before this by anyone who had any common sense and had ever heard the word of the Lord. This is one of the things that we continue to hear later on in the book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles when they are judging the quality and the worthiness of kings. Did they tear down the Asherah poles? Did they remove idols from their midst? When they don't do this, they are wicked kings. When they do it, they are good kings. Moses shows himself a good leader. He comes to this and he rips it apart. They cannot worship this thing. It's not just that he's angry at Aaron and he's going to ruin the thing that Aaron made like brothers sometimes do. Rather, he is doing this because it is right and proper. And even the third thing that he does, which seems a little weird, he grinds it up into a powder and throws it into the water so that the people will have to drink it. This is also incredibly purposeful. Why does he do this? Well, we don't have exactly why he did it in the text, but I would bet that there's a very sound reason in the fact that he has heard the Lord more than one time again say that the people are a stiff-necked people. They are becoming like what they've worshipped. It'd be very easy for the people to stand there and say, okay, well, we made a mistake. This is no big deal. It's a one-time thing and we can just, we can just forget about it, just pretend like it never happened and go back. And we can just start worshipping the Lord in the appropriate ways. Why make a big deal out of it? Moses is showing them that there's something bigger that's happened here. The moment that you worship that calf, you were changed. You were not the people you were before. There is no going back to it. You become what you worship. The easiest way to show them this is to make them take in what they worship. That calf sprinkled in the water, something that they need to have, they will ingest. It will become part of them. The idol becomes them just as they have become the idol. They might not know all that you know about how biology works and how they consume things, but they know that what they take in, their body uses. They know that what they take in becomes part of them. You are what you eat. And just as you are what you worship, Moses is giving them a very clear and obvious demonstration that there is no going back from this. There's no simply rewinding time and undoing it. You have done damage to yourselves. Furthermore, then, he turns and he kills 3,000 men with the help of the Levites. This is a little bit more difficult, but the same idea is going on here. There is some debate in scholarship about what's going on here. Some people think that when Moses says in verse 27, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor what he's actually doing there is offering the Levites the opportunity to do the same thing that he himself did. After all, he called the Levites to himself, or he called anyone to himself and said, who is on the side of the Lord? We know that the Levites, we, have, we don't know, but everything points towards the Levites partaking in the idol worship just as much as everyone else did. The, the Levites no doubt took part of this. It's almost impossible to think that Aaron stood aside out of everyone in his clan. Everyone else in his family, everyone else in his clan said, Aaron, this is a bad idea. And Aaron's like, no, I'm going to do this anyway. It's clear that it's not just people who worship the golden calf who are killed here. Every indication is that way more than 3,000 people worship that golden calf. And we know that Aaron did, who is of a member of the Levites. Or rather, It seems like what God is doing through Moses is calling them to repent and then to be on the Lord's side from here on out. And some scholars think that that's exactly what the Levites are going to do. And 3,000 men said, no, thank you. I don't need to be on the Lord's side. I don't know if that was the reason. I don't necessarily think that that's exactly what's going on here. Why did some die and others? Well, probably because God needed to show something to the people. There was no way for them to know the seriousness of what they had done. Up to this point, throughout the book of Exodus, the people would have had no way of knowing how deep of trouble they were actually in. They have seen the Lord's anger and his wrath against their enemies. And they have done sins before him. Before, they have grumbled and complained against Moses and against God. They have been threatened with things, but God has just been gracious and kind to them and everything. No matter how much they grumble, no matter how much they talk badly about him, no matter how unfaithful they might have been, God has continued to be gracious and kind to them. If this is all they ever saw, how would they know how close they were to being utterly and completely destroyed? Why would they not think that they could break the covenant all they wanted to with almost no repercussions at all? How would they know the seriousness of God's holiness or the ferocity of his wrath? They knew it against his enemies, but against them? So Moses, in taking the lives of these men, is showing to the rest, by being merciful to them, the seriousness of God. To follow this God is indeed life and death. Without this, the, the idea of punishment and wrath of God is merely talk to the Israelites. There's no substance to it. But now, every single person in that camp knows how serious the word of the Lord is. They know that he means that when he says this is a life and death matter, that you follow me, he means it. It is worth noting as well that the Lord apparently doesn't think that Moses and the Levites went far enough because at the end of that chapter in verse 35, the Lord then sends a plague on the people because they made the calf. He takes more lives. He doesn't think Moses went quite far enough. In each of these steps, I would argue that Moses' anger doesn't cause him to lose control of himself or to act irrationally against either guilty or innocent bystanders, but rather, his anger seems to be a propellant for logically necessary steps to get the people to see the truth and the gravity of the situation that they themselves have put themselves in. Do we say the same thing about our anger? Does our anger work itself out rationally? Does your anger, your frustration and how you vent it, Cause the results that you actually want. Cause right and good results. Or do you vent just to make yourself feel better? Are you in control of your anger? Or does your anger control you? This world is filled with sin. Anger is going to be a normal feeling. People you love will be sinned against, you yourself will be sinned against. How do you respond to those things? We are going to be angry at times, but we cannot be the kind of people who are characterized by it or who let it master us. Make sure your anger serves right and good purposes. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, but make logic the result of your anger. And secondly, let us make love the reason for your anger. Make love the reason for your anger. It's not hard to suggest at any time that love truly is the reason for anyone's anger. When someone insults you and you get angry, it is love for yourself or a love for your reputation that drives your anger. When someone hurts that which you love, you get angry because you love it. This is why it's easy to feel angry at a stranger that makes a a silly, a stupid, or a passing comment about someone you love. About your children, or about your wife, or about your mom, or whatever the case might be. But you can hear of despots doing amazingly horrific things in Africa, in the Middle East, and it not aroused anger in you. Not not the same kind of anger. And it's not because you're a hard-hearted person. It's because there's something about the love that you feel for those who are close to you that arouses anger quickly. More naturally. But love ought not just drive our anger, but also drive how we pursue and use that anger. And Moses, I think, here is just an absolutely great example of this. Moses' anger, first and foremost, is driven by his love for God. We talked last week about how God and Moses seem to interchange their own positions. God talking about how he was not going to fulfill his promises. He's going to destroy this people off the face of the earth. He's going to make a great nation out of Moses. He's going to stand back, lad, and I'm going to vent my anger on them. And Moses instead is the one who steps in and says, but think about your reputation, Lord. Think about your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We said that that is precisely what indicates that Moses is becoming like the God that he is worshiping. He sounds like God. He's acting like God. Because Moses worships this God. Moses loves this God. This is reinforced this week. Last week in chapter 32, verse 10. Again, we read this. Now, therefore, let me alone, God says to Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. My wrath may burn hot against them. And what do we have said of Moses the minute that he steps down? In Verse Nineteen. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. The Lord could see from up on the mountain, but Moses couldn't. But the minute that Moses can see, his reaction is exactly the same as the Lord's. He is livid. He's livid for the same reason the Lord is. Because to sin like this while carrying the Lord's name is to defile the name of the Lord. Moses loves the Lord, and therefore he can't stand it. This sort of love is reinforced then. And Moses looks around and notices that the people have broken loose. It simply means that the people are doing whatever it is that they want to do. Every, every need that they feel, every desire that they have, every worldly thing that they can do, they are allowing one another to just go off and do. There are no rules or no regulations. Just do whatever appetite for evil you have and fulfill it. When Moses calls out to the people, what does he do? Who is on the Lord's side? He said that their enemies were going to deride them. And indeed, they would deride the name of the Lord because of the way Israel was acting. And so he says, who is actually on the Lord's side? Moses loves the Lord. His love of the Lord and his love for the fame and the reputation of the Lord is what's driving him here. But I would argue it's not the only thing that drives him. Believe it or not, even though he acts in the way that he does against Israel so often in this passage. He's harsh against them. He has a difficult time with them. It is clear from this passage that there is a grave love that Moses has for Israel as well. First, he confronts Aaron for the sins of the people. It's clear that he believes that Aaron is the main source of the problem. The idea of the question that he asks Aaron is something that's close to exasperation there in verse 21. Verse 21. What did this people do to you? What, what could they possibly have done to you, Aaron? How close were they to killing you before you made this cap? What, what possibly could they have done? That you would have led them into such grave sin. You have placed the people in grave danger. In other words, it's not a failure of the people so much as it was, although it is a failure of the people, so much as it is a failure of Aaron's leadership. Aaron, for his part, Maintains his poor leadership like a pro. Absolutely turning on the people, looking at Moses saying, hey, don't be so angry with me. You know how evil the people are? They brought me their earrings, I threw them into a fire, and voila, this calf came walking out. It's not my fault. A lot could be said about that. It is one of the greatest evasions of responsibility in all of Scripture. Nevertheless, Moses clearly blames Aaron, The point isn't about Aaron's failure here for us. The point is that Moses clearly has compassion on the people. They are, to borrow a phrase, like a sheep without a shepherd. And Moses, like our Lord, has compassion on them. So first, his love for Israel is shown in the fact that he confronts Aaron for the sins of the people. And secondly, even the killing of 3,000 Seems, at first blush, like an act of hate and anger rather than love. But for those who were spared and whom God showed mercy to and Moses showed mercy to, it was indeed a grave act of love. If this is a way of showing Israel the gravity of their sin, we should mark it up as discipline for those who are left. As a display of grave mercy for those who are left. Hebrews 12 says this, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate sons, children, and not sons. Moses knows that these are the legitimate children of the Lord. They have been called my firstborn. And so what Moses does is bring them chastisement. He brings them discipline to say, Listen, what you have done here is not good. And it will destroy you one day. It's not an act of hate. For those to whom mercy is shown, it is an act of love. Thirdly, if you look in verse 32, Moses quite clearly pleads for their forgiveness. But now he says, if you will forgive their sin. He enters back into the presence of the Lord, which is astonishing because he has already asked for God to pardon them. If you go back to chapter 32, earlier in chapter 32, when God said, I'm going to consume them, Moses has already stepped in and interceded. But he's done it based on a completely different thing. Earlier in chapter 32, he interceded on the basis of his love for God. It's your reputation that's on the line. It's your promises that are on the line. But here, it is solely on behalf of the people. He goes back in before God, pleading on behalf of the people he says, I will make atonement for them. That word atonement simply means to cover up. It's to take their sin outside, dig a pit, throw it in, and cover it back up, sod it back over so that no one even knows it's there. It's a picture of somebody having a blemish on their face and using makeup to cover it up. It's men using beards to hide all their imperfections because they're totally insecure, which is what I'd say every time I shave my face The reason I'm doing this is because I'm wholly secure in who I am. Moses asks for the people to be forgiven completely outside of any sort of attitude he has about God. He asks for them to just point blank be forgiven. He doesn't say this on the basis of God's reputation, on the basis of God's name, on the basis of God's promises, on the basis of his faithfulness. He simply asks for the people forgive them their sins. Fourth. If that isn't enough, Moses puts himself on the line. When he says, directly after that, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written, I don't think that that is just him imploring God to if you you don't forgive the Israelites and you're going to blot them out, then you need to blot me out with them. It's not Moses simply standing in solidarity with them. It's not him sort of saying, well, Aaron wasn't willing to do this, but I am. I'm going to go down with the people. I am the captain of the people. I will go down with the ship. Or rather, I think that he is saying something completely and utterly different. He is saying, take me instead of the people. The people have sinned gravely in front of you. They have done evil in front of you. If you can forgive them, then forgive them. If not, take me in their stead. Sounds a lot like Paul who says this in the beginning of Romans 9, thinking about how sorrowful and how upset he is that his own fellow brothers and sisters, the Jews, have not come alongside the gospel in the numbers that he thinks they should. He says this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It's the exact same thing that Paul is saying here, or that, that Moses is saying here. If you can't forgive them, then cut me off. It is an act of love. There's no other way to understand that. He loves the people. They grumble and they complain. They grumble about him and his leadership. They slander him. And it's clear that Moses still loves them. Lastly, when we turn to Exodus 3, it starts to show how close God and Moses were, going so far in verse 11 of chapter 33 to call them friends and to adversely show how God is pulling away from Israel. God simply pulls his favor away from them. God does insist that he will be good to his promises, but he has never promised how he will be good to those promises. He says, okay, I told you that I will not destroy you off the face of the earth, and indeed, I won't do that. And I said that I will give you the promised land, and indeed, I will do that, but I will not go with you. He clearly shows that he is pulling away from them Furthermore, he required that they take off the jewelry, the jewelry that was supposed to be used for the good of the building of the tabernacle, but was instead used to further their sin and idolatry. He says, take it off. It was a sign of his favor to them. That as they left Egypt, the Egyptians would give this to them. By taking it off, God is saying, there should be no sign of my favoritism upon you anywhere. I will do what I need to do to be faithful to my word, but don't you dare think don't you dare think that i am somehow more predisposed to you than i am other people people no doubt understand this word it's called disastrous to them in verse 4 we get this interlude of the tent of meeting the tabernacle was meant to be a tent of meeting the tent of meeting this is not the tabernacle the tabernacle was to sit in the midst of the camp of Israel, in the very center of it. As a matter of fact, Israel was specifically arraigned around it, northeast, south, and west, so that they would always be looking into the center and seeing the tabernacle in the center. God was to be as central to them as he possibly could be, not just in their spiritual lives, but literally geographically centered to them. But now we have this report that there's going to be a tent of meeting, but it is specifically outside the camp, and it's specifically for Moses. And while Moses would go in and meet face to face, while Moses has the favor of the Lord, while Moses is considered a friend of the Lord, the people fade into the distance. Moses, for his part, seems to understand this. He understands God's affection for him. And amazingly, he uses his friendship with God for the advantage of the people of Israel. He continues to look at him in verses 12 through 17 and say, hey, Listen, if I've found favor, if you know me, if I've found favor, this is a a nice way of saying, while the text calls them friends, they speak as friends, Moses still knows that there is an infinite amount of distance between this holy God and himself. So instead of using the word friend, if you consider me a friend, he says, listen, if if I have found favor in your sight, and you know me by name, if we're friends, you can't just send an angel ahead. You can't just promise that you'll give us those things. You need to come with me. God responds. He says that he will be with you. You you can read that as being with the people of Israel. English fails us at this point. It's a singular you. He says, no, I, I am a friend of yours. I will be with you. But Moses knows very well He can't just be with Moses. The angel will go before them and he will clear the ground, but who will be with us? And Moses says, listen, if I have found favor with you in any way, shape, or form, if you consider me a friend, if you know me by name, if your favor rests upon me, then you need to go with all of us. Moses loved the people for all their grumbling and complaining He loves them, and he is willing to use his friendship with God, not as leverage for himself, which he obviously and clearly could have done on several occasions throughout this entire episode. The Lord said that he would gladly remake all of Israel through Moses. Moses rejects those things. He rejects the special and intimate picture of God being with him and him alone. And he instead leverages that friendship so that God will stay with his people, being good with his people, being in the midst of his people. The fact is, anger is almost always wrapped in love. Talk to any families who have had to deal with addiction. People who have been addicted to drugs or alcohol. I can guarantee you that those are people who have experienced an incredible amount of frustration and anger in dealing with that sickness and disease. And it's not solely because what they have happening around them takes so much out of them. And it does. It takes so much of their effort, so much of their time, so much of their compassion is is sponged out of them and into this person who finds themselves in this addiction. But it's not just that. Their, Their anger comes because they see a life and a person that they've loved being thrown away, being wasted. A life they care about and love the emptiness of the addiction and the dissolution of that life provokes anger in them. I think it does the same for Moses here. How many times does Moses says, you have done a grave sin? Moses, more than anyone, knows that they are in harm's way. That their addiction to idolatry, their addiction to sin is putting them in harm's way. And he is angry, not because he's upset with them alone. He's angry because he loves them. Because he doesn't want to see them wiped off the face of the earth. Because he has a true and abiding affection for the people of God. So, what about us? How do you handle anger? There's a lot of things to be angry about. Is your anger based more in love or in hate? Is your anger based in love for yourself? Or is your anger based in love for the other person? Does love control your anger? Or does your anger seek to calibrate how much you love? Can you intercede for those who sin carelessly against you? Or who callously grumble and complain against you? Who slander you? Even before God, you are not to seek anger, but you must be sure of these things. Your anger needs to be both logical and loving. You must seek the right outcomes, and your anger must be based in a sincere and abiding love, not just for God, but for those who have wronged you, for those who have hurt you, for those who have provoked your anger. For this is the model of the kind of love we see in God, and in Moses and no less in Jesus our lord let it be known that this is indeed how Jesus feels about you and about me your sin angers him his hatred of evil is just as strong as the father's because he is god you are not to think that the father is super angry with your love but or super angry with your sin but Jesus is just like ah eh, sin no big deal i really love you jesus hates your sin Hates it. We can easily say that his wrath burns hot against sin. But where Moses' life and love was never going to be enough to stand in the way of God's righteous anger, Jesus, in one person, has all that is needed. He knows the burning anger of God towards sin because he is God. He knows the graveness of sin because he has tasted its depths. He knows the deep of God's love for sinners because it is his love. And he is worthy to stand in our place to vent both anger and love for all who know him. He has taken your place that you might rightly love and follow him. See the glory of Jesus Christ. Worship it and find forgiveness and protection in God most high. Let us pray. Father, how thankful we are for the kindness